All right, well, we're going to begin on page 222 uh, this evening. It's nice to see you all and enjoy your friendship and fellowship and thinking about the Word together. Um, that's one of our greatest, uh, greatest earthly blessings that we can actually have. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> oh, our Father, uh, it is a blessing that you've adopted us and you've made us into your family. And we thank you that we can, uh, with, a deep, uh, with deep conviction and feeling, call one another brothers and sisters, that you've united us. <clears throat> and to think that Christ is not ashamed uh, to call us his brothers and sisters, Lord. It's a humbling thought uh, that he's not ashamed of us and forgive us when we have been ashamed of you. Father, uh, we continue to ask your power and grace for Bill Carson and for Frida and for Dorothy and uh, <clears throat> that you would, in a special way, stir up their minds uh, regarding your grace, your love, your power, your plan, uh, Lord, we pray that for ourselves. Uh, Lord, as we study, uh, as we begin to study the death of your Son, we pray that you give us clarity of mind and give us uh, <clears throat> clarity of heart. Lord, you've set him forth publicly, to use Paul's words, you displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And Lord, we find it almost, uh, we almost find ourselves withdrawing from studying and thinking on this. <clears throat> but yet, you have set him forth, crucified and risen. So, deepen our appreciation and understanding as we go through these sections of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight we reach the point of our Lord's <clears throat> uh, being lifted up. That was his expression. The Son of Man must be lifted up uh, so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so we're going to be studying for a number of weeks now Jesus' death by crucifixion. And your comments and <clears throat> questions are always welcome um, as we go, and we'll see how far we'll get here tonight. And I just have some introductory things to say. All four Gospels cover the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew and Mark almost identically follow each other. Uh, Matthew's probably following Mark, if Mark was written first. Um, Luke and John omit a number of the details that Matthew and Mark have, but both Luke and John bring additional material that Matthew and uh, Mark did not include in their accounts. So, as is so often the case in the Gospels, we're dealing with four accounts. We have four accounts of our Lord's crucifixion, and we have four sources. And each author has his own particular interest and uh, matters to emphasize, so their content varies somewhat. 
And that's a very good thing because we get four different perspectives on a number of matters. <clears throat> and there's no artificialness in the creation of these accounts. These are, these are first-rate historical documents. They're more than historical documents, but they're certainly nothing less than that. You know, they're first-century historical documents that are as historically credible as uh, any of any early documents from the first century. And of course, people will dismiss their credibility because of miracles. Okay? So if you're a naturalist and you don't believe that God works miracles, that's why people think the Gospels aren't historically credible, <clears throat> because they have miracles in them. Um, but if you set the miracles aside for a moment, everything else in the gospel could, is easily uncontestable as, as a historical record. And that certainly is the case here as we study the Lord's crucifixion as it's been, as we've studied his trial. So, so <clears throat> Matthew 27, 31 is the transition verse. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Um, <clears throat> death by crucifixion was a horrific form of execution in regard both to the physical suffering and to the public shame. There were two goals <clears throat> of execution by crucifixion inflict the maximum amount of pain and agony and inflict and do it publicly and inflict the maximum amount of shame. Okay? And this method of execution was designed to do both of those things, the pain and the shame. And uh, <clears throat> no Roman citizen, no Roman citizen could ever be executed by crucifixion, except the emperor specifically issued an edict uh, regarding this form of execution. J.R. Edwards makes this perceptive comment, quote, every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus, and crucifixion was Rome's terror apparatus ad horrendum. Infamous alike, for its infliction of pain and ignominy, that is, shame, on the victim. And that certainly is the case. Uh, <clears throat> the Romans would use uh, crucifixion of those who are rebelling against the emperor as a deterrent. And uh, you can read their writings where they think this is a good thing to do and it's a proper thing to do in order to deter others from committing the same type of, of crimes. And in one of the, the slave rebellions, I forget the, the, procur, the procurator's name, but they crucified 6,000 slaves along the, one of the major Roman routes. And there was a rebellion, there was a slave rebellion and they crucified six uh, six thousand slaves, uh, put them on crosses uh, along one of the major Roman roads. It was done to uh, basically uh, try to put down uh, rebellion. So 
Our Lord is classed here with the worst of criminals uh, in the eyes of both the Jews and, and the Romans. Um, now, for the Jews, the horror of the cross was even heightened because of the curse given in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So there was a special, um, what, I don't know whatever word to use, but there was a special uh, terror of, of uh, crucifixion, death this way because of that Deuteronomy curse. And the corpse of a judicially executed criminal was hung up for public exposure, which branded him as cursed by God based on Deuteronomy. The Jews certainly would have made that association. And we know Paul does in Galatians 3.13, doesn't he? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having... having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so every, every Jew, almost every Jew would understand that. Hmm. All right. Okay, so for the Jews, this was associated with being cursed uh, by God based on Deuteronomy. Five days earlier, get the... Get the time frame here. Five days earlier on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem being hailed. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That was just five days ago. Now, on Good Friday, Jesus exits the city bearing a cross beam to be executed as one of the most heinous and despised of criminals. Hailed as king on Sunday, exiting the city on Friday, um, carrying the instrument of his own execution. So let's begin at verse 32 of of Matthew there. Now as they came out, and that would be as they came out of the city, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear bear his cross. So based on Mark, Mark gives us a little more information. Simon was coming in from the country, and that's why uh, this going out is going out of the the city. means they met outside this at least outside the city gate they found a man a man of Cyrene Cyrene Simon by name him they uh him they that is the roman soldiers compelled Simon to bear Jesus's cross um this being the case Jesus did struggle and carry the cross beam some distance at least to get outside of the city and and through the city gate. And uh, we can flip and look at the map. The distance is not not that great. Here is the praetorium. And uh, so Jesus would have traveled traveled from here. 
and I would assume the nearest gate here, and we know from the scale this is, this is not a large distance. Um, and somewhere out here, outside of the city, is where Simon was compelled to carry the cross uh, the rest of the distance over here to the traditional location uh, <clears throat> of the Mount uh, Gol- Golgotha. So let's think about this a little bit. Um, the soldiers realized that Jesus would not be able to reach the destination or it would take too long for him to be able to get to the place of execution. And so they happened to just grab a hold of Simon as he was going into the city and forced him to carry Jesus' crossbeam. Now, this was an example of the Roman occupation. What they did to Simon was what Jesus said. You know, if they, if they ask you or command you to go one mile, go two. And that's, this is an example of that. The Jews deeply resented the uh, Romans over that practice, but soldiers had that right to do that with anybody in any province, and that's what the soldiers are doing here with Simon. They simply compel him into service for them uh, to carry Jesus' beam. Um, the soldiers could have easily carried the beam themselves, but they would not do that. Um, they would not do that. So, the picture we have here of the Lord Jesus, of course, is he's weak, he's stumbling, and he's straining. He's straining with whatever strength he has left to get to Golgotha. And that reminds me of his utter determination to offer himself to God as the sacrifice for his people. He's struggling to get there and uh, he's not making enough progress and so he's too weak to make enough progress. And John 13.1 comes to mind when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His hour has come. He will go through with offering himself in the place of his own. He uses the last of his strength, bearing the cross, straining toward Golgotha. He is motivated by this love for his people. He loved them to the end, is how John introduces this whole part of the gospel. He loved them to the end, that is, to the completion of whatever was necessary to secure their life, their forgiveness and their reconciliation with God. He is utterly determined to save them. And this is the means. So as we see him leaving the city, carrying that beam, with whatever strength he has left, he is, he is utterly determined to save us. That's what he's doing. And uh, the scene also reminds me of, the, of this hour which relates to the Father. In John 12, 27 through 28, we remember 
Jesus saying, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He is also utterly committed to the glory of the Father. He uses the last of his strength to go out of the city, not saying, save me from this hour, but saying, Father, glorify your name. And so what we're seeing displayed here is he's utterly committed to save those people whom the Lord had given him to save. He's utterly committed to save them and he loves them and he's utterly committed to glorify the Father. And this means, and you can trace it through the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, the the biggest means of glorifying the Father in the Gospel of John is the lifting up of the Son in the Gospel of John. The means of glorifying the Father in the Gospel of John is the lifting up of the Son. And uh, that's what's happening here. His utter commitment to the love of His people and to the, and to the, glory, the glory of the Father. On the part with the Cyrene on Simon? Yes. A long line with what you're saying is the one thing that gets me, and I'm sure we would all agree, is Christ in all his might wanted to carry it himself. I have no yeah. doubt he mm. wanted to carry it for himself yeah. for us. Mm. And it just always breaks yeah. my heart. I have no doubt yeah. he wanted to, but Cyrene yeah. compelled Cyrene yeah. to, to, to carry it for him. Right. But I have no doubt our master mm. willingly would have carried it. Yeah. But he couldn't. Yeah. 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 So any anybody else as as we see Jesus embarking on on the uh, <clears throat> the offering of, of himself. Okay, well let's talk about Simon then a little bit. Simon was from Cyrene, that's a Greek settlement on the north on the coast of North Africa. And we assume he was a Jew having the name Simon. Uh, why is the name Simon so popular? And why was the name Judas so popular amongst the Jews? Anybody? Because of the Maccabean military heroes in the intertestamental period. Simon was one of Mattathias's sons and so was Judas. They were great Warriors and pushing back the Gentile occupation of Jerusalem is why those names uh, <clears throat> those names are so popular, both the name Judas and Simon. Uh, so we think Simon is probably a Jew uh, <clears throat> from Cyrene uh, because of that, because of his name as a Maccabean hero. Mark informs us that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And uh, so Mark assumes that his readers know who Alexander and Rufus are. And it is possible that this is the Rufus of Romans chapter 16, verse 13. 
uh, where Paul says, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Um, that's possible. Uh, it's also, one of the reasons it's possible is, is that Mark wrote with the Roman church in mind. Mark may very well have written this gospel while he was in, while he was in Rome. So it is possible that the father of Simon, Rufus, is, is this Rufus that we come across later in the, in the church at Rome. We can't, we can't prove that, but, but it's just possible. Um, so <clears throat> it's interesting that in 1941, in an ossuary in the Kidron Valley, belonging to Cyrenian Jews, dating from pre eighty seventy, that it is it has it's inscribed twice, Alexander the son of Simon. So we have those two inscriptions also. So what we just we cannot be certain uh, if the same family is in view here in the Gospel as well as there in Romans. Uh, it's possible. Now, there's no indication that Simon was sympathetic to Jesus or that he even knew what was taking place. Um, he was forced to the task, and he probably had very little context. He probably, didn't, he probably thought this was another criminal with the other two guys that were on their way. And so um, maybe, you know, there's some legend and stuff that has, has kind of tried to turn Simon into a saint here. Uh, but there's no, we have no information uh, like that. He's just compelled to do this, and he doesn't have a choice, and he does it. Now, thankfully to, uh, to Luke, he has a one little comment in there that helps us see the picture a little bit better, and that is uh, when they had led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Syrian, who was coming, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So Jesus is out front, and Simon is behind Jesus carrying the cross, is the order, is the visual of how this is taking place. So Jesus is leading the uh, procession here, and it's going to turn into quite a procession uh, between here and and Gel and Golgotha, um, as we go, so now <clears throat> we're going to switch over to Luke, and I think I have these things in the correct order that they unfolded. So Jesus's address to the daughters of Jerusalem is only in the Gospel of Luke, and so we're in Luke right now. So. We can stay there. So, so, and great multitudes of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, 
what will be done in the dry. So, wow, this is quite, quite a scene. Jesus is on his way to Golgotha, and people have discovered that these executions are taking place, and they're coming out of the city, and and we find out that there's women that have come out of the city and they're following along in this procession and, and they, are, they are lamenting him. They are weeping. And Jesus turned, Jesus hears them sobbing and weeping and he turns and addresses them this, with this address. And uh, we'll spend a little time here so yeah, something like a procession has formed early Friday morning. Jesus is in the front. He's flanked by the Roman soldiers and the three criminals are heading for execution. Simon is behind Jesus and a great multitude is following behind him. And we are surprised to find that among the multitude there are women who mourned and lamented him. This is interesting in Luke's Gospel because beginning with the infancy narratives forward, women have always played a significant role in Luke's Gospel. And this is another case where Luke points out the activities of women in his Gospel. And he's going to do that again. We're going to see, we're going to see the women. Well, John's going to do it. We're going to see the women at the cross and then we're going to see the women at the tomb. And now we see Luke uh, drawing attention to these uh, daughters of Jerusalem, uh, that title. Now, these women show a human sympathy toward Jesus, which is good. But nevertheless, they are still part of the unbelieving generation. And they're part of that unbelieving Jewish generation, which is why Jesus addresses them the way that he does. And addressing them as daughters of Jerusalem is not intended to be a positive affirmation. Jerusalem is the center of Israel's unbelief, as Jesus already expressed in his earlier lament. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So Jerusalem is the center of that unbelieving generation and rejection of the Messiah. And so um, uh, they are daughters of this rebellious, unbelieving city. It's not a compliment to them, that title. If they were believing, if they were believing, an address of daughters of Abraham would be appropriate. But he doesn't address them as daughters of Abraham. Who did Jesus address? as he too is a child of Abraham. In the Gospel of Luke. Ah, you're right, Rochelle, Zacchaeus. <laughs> when Zacchaeus was repenting, he said, Zacchaeus, come down, I must eat at your house today. And, and Jesus makes that comment because he too is a child of Abraham. 
And the way you show you're a child of Abraham is by believing in Abraham's seed, which is the Christ, the Messiah. So all, all I'm saying is, daughters of Jerusalem, that is a warning that they're daughters of this unbelieving, rebellious city. Okay? And that's why they get this warning. Um, even though there, there is some sympathy here uh, for, the, for the human suffering that they are witnessing. Uh, <clears throat> so, let me get back to the notes. Yeah, that calling them daughters of... Okay, was, okay was, all right, I said that enough. Um, Jesus is hearing these women, they're mourning, sobbing. He tur- okay. And this is what he says in a startling manner. He says, do not weep for me. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. As one commentator expressed it, quote, Jesus is not looking for sympathy. Do not weep for me. That's what he says. Jesus is not looking for sympathy, but for conversion. Up to this time, up to this time has gone unheeded. Okay? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That warning has become, been unheeded. The threshing floor is going to be thoroughly cleansed. The wheat will be gathered and the chaff will be burned up with unquenchable heat. The axe is laid to the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. These women are mourning with a genuine sympathy that they still need to repent. Those warnings are all true. Where did, where did those warnings come from that I just read? That I just summarized? The wheat and the chaff and those that don't bear uh, the axe is laid to the tree. If it doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be cut down. Where are those warnings coming from? Well, huh? I'll give you a hint. It's a New Testament figure. What are you talking about the sword and the seed? John. John who? Yeah, that's all the terminology from John the Baptist. After he quotes, you know, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now that's Malachi. And then what did the prophet say? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, but... What did he say? But who can endure the day of his coming? They're all excited for him to come. And even in Malachi, hundreds of years further, earlier, the warning is issued. He's coming. But who in Israel is going to be able to endure his coming? And when John the Baptist shows up, he gives exactly that message. He's going to gather the wheat into the barn and the chaff he's going to burn up with unquenchable heat. 
and the axe is laid at the root of the tree, every tree that does not bear fruit is going to be cut down. What fruit was the Lord looking for, ultimately? What fruit is God looking, was God looking for from them? What? You're not speaking of the fruits of the Spirit, right? No. Yeah. No. When, 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 when John gives that warning, the axe is laid at the foot, foot of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down. What is the good fruit? No. What is the good fruit that God expects out of Israel? What's that? Yes! <laughs> Say the other. What else goes with that? To believe Him and repent. To believe in Him and repent. It's been the same problem since the Exodus. <laughs> they don't believe in Yahweh. And ultimately, Yahweh sends His Son. And this is the final call to Old Covenant Israel, to faith and repentance. The fruit that is being looked for is a genuine repentance toward God and faith in God via now His Son. Okay? So that is the fruit. And when Jesus gives this warning to these women, it sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? It does. And, and, and those warnings of John are going to happen. They're going to be fulfilled. And, and so, um, <clears throat> that, that's, what's, that's what's going on. So, um, yeah, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. Jesus gave a parable like that too, didn't he? Right, the parable of the barren of the of the barren fig tree, and and uh, and unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. That's uh, so. So these okay. So uh, these women don't yet realize that it is their sinfulness that has made this spectacle necessary. Okay. Do we realize that? What has made this spectacle necessary? Jesus coming out of that city, bearing that crossbeam, trying to get to the place of crucifixion. It's our sinfulness that's made that spectacle necessary. You know, the cross doesn't simply testify to us of the love of God, which of course it does. But it testifies to us, what must we be if that is the remedy? Right? What condition must we be in if it requires that for the solution. Right? That's right. And these women don't realize that 
and I hope you do, and I hope I do. I mean, it isn't just, you know, it isn't just the law that's a mirror, right? The law's a mirror. It shows us our sinfulness, doesn't it? You know, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law's a mirror. Okay? The cross is a mirror. Christ crucified is a mirror. We're in that. We see ourselves. We are the reason for that spectacle. Our sinfulness and God's justice. Yeah, God's justice is also there, absolutely. Okay? And there's just too much superficial preaching of the cross. I don't want to be too negative. It just it is just very superficial on what this really means. So um <clears throat> and that's why the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Remember this. Think about this. Don't forget this. So Jesus addresses these ladies uh, with these terrifying warnings. So, they don't yet realize it is their sinfulness that has made this spectacle necessary. Jesus knows that He will come through this He knows that. I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up. Jesus knows He will come through this. But where will they end? Where will these women end? On Sunday, when Jesus descended to enter the city, He wept over it. This passage connects to that. Five days earlier when he entered that city, he wept over it. And he said, for days will come when upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. Five days earlier, Jesus wept over these women. He wept over Jerusalem, including these women. The prophetic genre of Jesus' language in verses 29 through 30 is unmistakable. Jesus is speaking as a prophet of future apocalyptic judgment that will come upon Israel, including these women. The nearest approaching judgment is the destruction of Judea, Jerusalem, and the temple in 70 A.D. One more generation. This generation will not pass away, Jesus said, until all these things are accomplished in that Olivet Discourse. when it will be destroyed by the Romans, those watching their children starve to death or being eaten 
during the siege will surely say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nurse. That's exactly what happened. If you read Josephus' account, that's exactly what unfolded. The reference has its grounding in the covenant curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 53 through 57. The apocalyptic judgment language. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. That's what Jesus told these women. That apocalyptic language is found in Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, and Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. Disobedient and unbelieving Jerusalem will choose to be buried alive rather than face the divine wrath which is coming. All I'm doing is making us think about Jesus' words that he addressed to these women. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. That's the apocalyptic language of judgment, of God's wrath, of facing God's wrath and trying to hide oneself from it. That's, that's the imagery in that, in that illustration. In verse 31, Jesus refers to what must have been a well-known proverb or saying, for if they do these things, if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? The precise meaning here is difficult to determine, but it, it's somewhere down the following lines. Jesus is the green wood. They, they are the dry wood. If Jesus, the green wood, is not spared, but consumed by the fire of God's judgment, there is no possibility that they, the dry wood, will be spared. J. Edwards says, quote, if God allows his righteous son to suffer crucifixion, what fate must await unrighteous Jerusalem and those who crucify him? I think that's I think that's somewhere in, in the ball in the ballpark. If they do this in the greenwood, this meaning Jesus' death and suffering. They do this to him. What's going to happen to the dry wood? So, it is a awesomely serious warning. It's sobering. Uh, and it's right here in the middle 
of the crucifixion account with Jesus on his way uh, to be crucified. The passage informs us that nothing in Jesus' teaching teaches universalism. If universalism were true, Jesus would never have spoken these words to these women. He'd have been a false prophet if he spoke peace to these unrepentant women. That would have been a false prophet. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. The warning is an act of compassion as Jesus is on, on, on his way to the cross. It's an act of compassion. Jesus wept over them already. Jesus wept over the city when he entered it. So don't make this warning into some vindictive something. It's not. We've seen his compassion for the city and its residents when he entered the city. It's like, wake up, wake up. So it's an act of compassion. And um, so, if universalism were true, Jesus would never have spoken these words, these kinds of warnings to these women, and then, you know, indirectly to us. We know that after Pentecost, thousands of Jewish men and women in Jerusalem did repent and were baptized in the name of Jesus. We know that. The despised, rejected, suffering Messiah of the prophets, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And it became marvelous in the eyes of all who believe in him. Correct? To use the words of Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And what did the psalmist say? And it is marvelous in our eyes. So come Pentecost, there were thousands converted. Maybe some of these women among them. We don't, we don't know. But... Um, Wow. Um, so it's five minutes to eight. Maybe we'll stop there and just have some um, discussion or anything you might like to add. Matthew? When you uh, brought up the, you know, the fruit and the one that's going to be hewn down and cast. Yes. I mean, even now, even as a young believer, when I read those passages, I'd always took it that the fruit is us, the saved, and then, okay, the, you know, on that particular context yeah. that you were talking about, and then right. the, the part when I'm tried with fire is cast. I had always took it, and I still do, so help me understand where 
I do something that is right and just, but my motive is completely wrong. And so when it tried with fire, God says, no, that was hypocritical. You didn't do that right. And so he threw that in the fire. And, you know, because when I'm tried, the only thing that stood firm was what I did that was in Christ. Is that making sense? You know, like, here I am. I am a believer, born again. I'm doing right. I had the fruit. But then sometimes if a bad fruit comes out, because maybe right. I did something hypocrisy, maybe I did something that wasn't just, no. but I, but in the eyes of yeah. everyone else, it looked good. Yeah. I, so that's it, what I was trying to understand. Yeah, I think I, I think I understand what you're saying, Matthew. That figure of fire has different applications in different contexts. In, in the John the Baptist context, which I referred to here tonight, that that, you know, who can endure the day of his coming, for he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Um, and when John gives that warning that he will, he will gather up the, the wheat into the barn and the chaff he'll burn up in unquenchable, that fire there is a, a God's judgment. Okay, that's not talking about uh, burning up your good works or something. No, there's two categories there. Some people are, are the wheat and they're God's people and he's going to save them. Those that, don't, those that reject his son are going off to divine judgment, which is the fire in, in, in John the Baptist's ministry. So that fire there is, is a warning of God's judgment. So... Um, um, uh, another passage where you're, that idea you're mentioning probably is coming from is in Corinthians where we have this uh, the, the builders are warned and that every man's work will be tested and I think that passage is often wrongly exegeted but it's very popular, and, 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 and I may not be correct, and, and maybe the popular treatment of that passage is okay, where the believer is going to be saved, but his works are going to be burned up. Okay, and he'll be saved as through fire. So some of the things you're saying to me sounds like that interpretation of that Corinthian passage, which I don't think that's correct either, I think what is addressed in that Corinthian passage are the builders. And Paul is warning the builders that are now at Corinth, if they don't build correctly, the work that's going to be burned up is the people. Their fruit is not going to endure. And it's a judgment upon the builders in that context. And if you trace the pronouns through that passage, I think that's pretty clear. So, am I helping you at all? Yeah, yeah. So, now about the fruit, about, like, you know, I kind of challenged you all, like, what is the fruit that, that, that is being looked for? And its response is faith and repentance in God's Son. And I want to show you that um, from Luke chapter 13. Uh, And there were present at that season some who 
told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them and said to them, Do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but what? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, Jesus knew these people were self-righteous. He knew how they would answer the question, boy, what did those Galileans do? They must have been really evil to suffer that fate. They must have been really evil. And Jesus says, no, you're just as evil as they were. That's his point. He's, he's addressing people that are self-righteous. And he says, unless you repent. You see, those Galileans are the people that needed to repent. Those, they were the big sinners. And that's why they died. You know, why Pilate, they died that kind of a death. They were the big sinners. Jesus knows how they're thinking. So he asked them that question. You suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others? No, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then he does that again about the Tower of Siloam, and then he follows with this parable. Okay? He also spoke this parable. This is the same audience. He spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? That's what the owner said. But the vine dresser said, he answered and said to him, Sir, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. What's he talking about? They're giving more space for repentance. That's what he's saying. Unless you repent, you'll all perish. And not yet. Instead of perishing then, what's happening? The owner is fertilizing the tree. The owner is paying special attention to the tree. What is that? That's Jesus preaching the gospel. That's God sending his son to Israel. And saying, I'm not, I'm not judging you yet. I'm actually fertilizing you. I'm, I'm displaying another round of goodness and mercy on you. But sooner or later, the time's going to run out if there's no fruit. See? If there's no fruit, and the fruit is that type of repentance that Jesus taught throughout the gospel. They needed to humble. He who humbles himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. So that's the fruit that's being looked for. A humble faith and repentance because God is merciful and away with this self-righteousness. I'm done.
Anybody else? <laughs> I'll probably be afraid to ask a question after that. No, good question, Matthew. Big subjects, important. Anybody, anything you'd like to add? Uh, okay. Good to be here. <laughs> All right. Let's see. I'm going to ask Daniel lead us in prayer. Give him the microphone. You can't, you sure? You can't. You're not doing this thing when you've had a good day, you think you can pray, and when you've had a bad day, you can't? Self-righteousness, brother. Matthew, lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, I'm kind of like Daniel right now. I just want to be quiet and, and just know that you're God. But I am thankful on being here. We are here together, united in Christ, bonded by the blood of Christ. And I am reminded that we, we're family. We get on each other's nerves. Yet we love each other. And we have a friendship that is going to be for all eternity. And I'm looking forward to paradise. And I really would like you to bring my mom there. Be with us as we leave. Let the joy of Christ burn in our hearts. In Christ's name. Amen.